0: Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that says you can make friends with your inner critic and even take them out to dinner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Welcome back to a special episode of The New Disruptors, episode 99A, A Conversation with Lucy Bellwood. If you've listened to the previous special episode 99, follow the show on Twitter at New Disruptors or me at Glen F or seen the Zeppelin I hired to advertise the fact over major cities, I'm crowdfunding a return of the New Disruptors. The campaign is just over 55% funded as I record this in mid-June. The TLDR? Go to newdisrupt.org to pledge and find out more. Just got a couple weeks left in the campaign, and with your help, we can get there. I halted production almost four years ago because of two things, time and money. The Kickstarter campaign will help me interleave both these concepts and produce a new year of the New Disruptors. The basic goal is about one episode a month, but stretch goals will help me produce more episodes in that same period of time. The funds go towards editing, audio hardware and software, hosting fees, travel and conference fees, and my time so that I can find fresh voices to talk about how to build an independent career or business in creative fields in 2018. I want to record more face-to-face interviews and more interviews in front of live audiences as part of this reboot. You can find more detail and support the campaign at newdisrupt.org kick or go to kickstarter.com and search for New Disruptors, that's disruptors with an O near the end. You can pledge as little as you like. An insider rewards start at $25, where you can get early access to episodes and early or exclusive access to audio, video, photographs, and other things, as well as free admission to live events that have a fee. At $100, your name will be read on an episode as a supporter, and you'll receive an exclusive enamel pin. I'm also offering sponsorship rewards for reaching the new disruptor's motivated and brilliant audience. Now onto this conversation, Lucy Bellwood is an adventure cartoonist who I first interviewed in episode 82 almost four years ago. Since then, Lucy has had two more successful Kickstarter campaigns to fund books, taught cartooning in Denmark, sailed tall ships, had an artist residency on the RV Falkor Oceanographic Research Vessel, and became a finalist in the New York Times 52 Places Correspondence Search. Lucy just passed through Seattle on a book tour for 100 Demon Dialogues, a book and plushie that evolved from the 100-day project in which participants make something every day for that previously noted 100 days. This book of one-panel cartoons of her tension and resolution with her inner critic, portrayed as a somewhat cute demon with a few pointy teeth, is the result. She invited me to have a conversation about creativity and independence at her appearance on June 8th in Brick and Mortar Books in Redmond, Washington, and that conversation follows. I talk a bit about London Kerning, a book I recently crowdfunded, wrote, produced, and shipped out, and the trials and tribulations with pricing and getting that book together. And Lucy talks about her journey with a 100 demon dialogues and what it meant to her and the readers as she went along the way. Enjoy this bonus episode and help bring back this podcast for regular interviews by visiting newdisrupt.org slash kick or go to kickstarter.com and search for New Disruptors. Thanks for listening and thanks as always for your support.
1: When you're an independent published person, I should point out like this is not when you tell people you're going on tour, they're they're very impressed. They always go, "Oh, congratulations!" And really, it should be like, "I'm so sorry." <laughs> My condolences. <laughs> Do you need anything? Just like Anne knew exactly what I need. Anne was like, "Can I bring you dinner?" <laughs> because you will be sprinting straight from the train station to here. It's humbling and cool, uh, but it is all self-organized. So I am particularly grateful that all of you have come out this evening and uh, are are here to talk about stuff. And I brought my friend Glenn. Here's Glenn. I should I should say rather my friend Glenn brought me. Uh, I would not be here if it weren't for Glenn. I'd be struggling away on the bus.
0: Hello everybody. So Lucy's been a friend for years and we became friends because I interviewed her on a podcast which is apparently how you make friends. So you start a is. podcast. I made friends with many people. I did a podcast called uh, The New Disruptors for 93 episodes from 2012 to 2014 and it was uh, an incredible pleasure because I said, you know, look, there's something big happening. This Kickstarter thing, I, was, I'm a, I work as a reporter. Um, I've, I have a joke. Let me tell you my joke, which is I was trained as a typesetter in high school, and I worked. That's how I helped put myself through college. And then I became a journalist, so I'm collecting obsolete professions. <laughs> Laugh every time. Sorry, I just—I didn't even mean that as a joke the first time I told that, and it got a laugh. It's like, oh, that is funny. All right, so, uh, but so I know, like, a buggy whip manufacturer next. Um, so uh, yeah, so I work as a technology journalist, and I was following Kickstarter and started to write more and more about these projects, and I thought there is something very exciting going on, and what better form than this—not exactly new medium of podcasting to examine it in. So I started a podcast called The New Disruptors, and I would call people up like Lucy or um, Erica Mowen, our good friend and uh, studio mate, um, or um, Jonathan Colton, the musician. I'd be like, Sir Mix-a-Lot, you're an independent producer. <laughs> we should talk. He's like, great. And I had an incredible conversation with how he built his career, even though he started decades before this period. He's still part of it. And, um, you know, talked to industrial designers, the guy who invented the onion goggles, which was a very famous, best-selling thing. The power I squid, need those. Power squid. Power squid. You know, oh, that, you mean like the, the power cord? Yeah, the, the squid kind of, yeah. And this guy was helping facilitate other people. He had a on comp- like an entrepreneur innovation company. So I wow. did 90-something episodes of those. The the podcast era, it didn't end, but it had kind of gone on the power lock curve where the big ones got big. And if you didn't weren't at a certain scale, it was hard to do advertising. So I had a mm-hmm. lot of stuff changing, editing, kind of walked away from it for a bit and uh, got back into the sort of, you know, I'm a freelancer. I work for a lot of people. I've got a lot of stuff going on. And then I... Um, had this idea 2016 was a lousy year for me like I did okay but you know uh, many people it, it worse it just it just you know finished out that year for a variety of reasons some of which we share, some of which we may not. Uh, and uh, I thought I need to do something creative. I need to put a stick in the stand that says I can still be a creative person at a time when there's um, all this tumult happening and people are hurting in all this way. I could put something artistic out there. And I've been writing a lot in 2016 uh, and t- and a little bit in 2015 about the history of printing and about um, all kind of old things becoming new again. Uh, you know, I wrote this piece for the Atlantic about a website that had not made a success of it, but they hadn't failed. They were doing, um, it was almost Instagram-y, but it was more thoughtful. It was called hi.co, and you could post a picture during your travels and write a little bit about it. And then if other people on the site wanted to hear more, they'd ask you. And then you'd write like a paragraph and um, we started by a guy named Craig Maud, who is the most oh. interesting man in the world. I anyway follow him he's on Twitter. We
1: were just talking is, about him on the way over here, actually.
0: Craig is like my guru because I and I don't understand. He's just he's an amazingly latest guy. He has a great. I got him into podcasting, by the way. Hey, he's like, his listen, show is very. Good. I interviewed him and he's like, you know, this podcasting thing is fun. Now he has this amazing show. So anyhow, he's great. But um, uh, so he had this website and they wanted to make a permanent record of it. And so they said, well why don't we archive it for 10,000 years on nickel metal plates, as one might. And, um, you know, so I'd written these (laughs) stories about the past stretching into the future and the past and whatever, you know, this connection. I thought, you know, it'd be fun to make a book of this, and I wonder if I could get a few copies printed inexpensively. So I call a few different people, including uh, Jenny Wilkson, who's the head of the letterpress program at the School of Visual Design in downtown Seattle. And uh, I said, Jenny, do you know where I could get this book done? you know, like a digital printing or something short run. I'm not going to make 10,000 of these. I'll do a little Kickstarter. She's like, no, you know what you should do is you should come be the first designer in residence and print your book on letterpress. And I said, (laughs) yes, breaking the speed of sound. And how do we make this work? So I spent 2017 printing a book on letterpress and did a Kickstarter to raise the funding for that. I had this amazing, beautiful, uh, wonderful year last year being an artist working full-time as a journalist and also part-time as an artist in residence and uh, getting involved in the letterpress community and printing, and then this amazing thing happened. I'm not want to go on too long. This no, amazing thing this. happened. It's this a little bit in the book. Is so
1: beautiful, you guys. I can't I wish I had, had I didn't bring,
0: I'm sorry. I didn't bring you'll have to hear my <gasps> descriptions <gasps> of so it. Great. I didn't bring a copy of it. The year is going on and I get this email out of the blue. Like I most of my projects done, I'm trying to figure out the next thing I do sort to finish out this year and I get an email from Monotype which makes, you know, digital typefaces. And they said, "Would you be interested in the fact that we are about to produce a revival of five typefaces by Berthold Volpa?" And I said, Do you understand that you've just emailed the person who is possibly one of the most passionate fans of Berthold Volpe <laughs> in the world. They're like, no, we didn't know this. So when I was in college in the late 80s, I had um, mentors and professors in graphic design. that was the field I studied. Some of whom, or one of whom knew Berthold Volpe. He was a designer, as uh, was a German, uh, uh, born in Germany in the early 1900s, had studied with Rudolf Koch, who was one of the most legendary type designers in, in Germany, um, and also beautiful uh, calligrapher, and had been forced to emigrate from Germany uh, uh, when the Nazis took power to England, Stanley Morrison, who was the head of Mono- or the Monotype's uh, type um, c- commission typefaces, he was their type consultant, got him over this whole amazing story, winds up getting sent to Australia because he was a foreign national, and so they sent all these Germans to Australia on boats through U-boat infested water, and then he came back, it was this whole thing, and, uh, but somewhere in that time, the 1930s and 40s, he develops uh, several typefaces, including Albertus, which you know from the Prisoner TV show, and it's the typeface on the, that's up there in Big, uh, and Albertus is still, it's incredibly widely used. So I get this email from Monotype, I'm like, that's fantastic, would you like to interview the designer who's doing the revival? Well, of course I would, I find an outlet to write something about it for, I get on the phone, and they're like, oh yes, and we're also doing an exhibit in London of things that no one's ever seen, and I'm like, talk to my wife, I had two trips planned, very rare for me, and I said, honey, would you mind if I go to London? She's like, Go. If you can, I'm like, oh, the timing, no, I can't, I've already got, I can't make it happen. Then I get an email from Monotype, oh, you know, we've extended the exhibition. I'm like, this is a sign, i have to go <laughs> to London. So in the end, I start planning this trip, I'm like, it's going to be super cheap, I'm going to stay at Airbnb and Friends, I'm going to, you know, I'll maybe figure out one article I can pick up that'll cover the expense. And I start making dates to meet up with people like these designers I know and letterpress people, and suddenly I think, there could be a book in this and I could cover the expenses and it would be the nice capstone to this year of design and residence. So that's the long story. So I go to London, I do a Kickstarter, I raise double my goal, which will cover all my expenses and some of the printing, figuring I'll sell more copies after I have them further along. I go to London, I spend six days there. I met, I don't know, like 40 people. I saw two collections that are essentially closed to the public, not quite um, because of fu- financial reasons and curator of one and the, the founder of the other took me around and showed me everything because they're so delighted anybody is interested and wants to spread the word. This is the
1: secret about museums. My my first book is uh, all about my former life as a a tall ship sailor. I worked on big 18th century sailing vessels. Sorry if you all know this already. Uh, (laughs) And if you go to any maritime museum and you're like super engaged and interested in what they're about, I have seen stuff you would not believe just because I've like walked up to a curator or a docent and said like, so, What's, what's the weirdest thing you've got back there? <laughs> and they're like, oh, do you, do you really want to know? We've got this tiny musket that's made out of ivory. It was carved by prisoners of war in the Antarctic. And I'm like, yes, take me there. And uh, before you know it, they like open the in, at the USS Constitution Museum in Boston. The regular museum does not have this carpeting, but the behind-the-scenes museum has navy blue carpeting with gold ship's wheels on it, like all over. It's like walking into Gringotts in Harry Potter, like it's great. (laughs) So cool. And their curator was a, a, costume historian. And so he was like showing me all of the incredible 18th century garments they have. And these, like, yeah. anime, he's
0: like, you're actually interested in this stuff. Let me show you everything. Oh yeah.
1: It's really different this than is, just being like, where are the pirates? Oh
0: my gosh. <laughs> this is a friend and, uh, he and his wife and, uh, well friends with the wife too. And, uh, his daughter who's 10, they were in New York recently and they pop in there, some historical museum is about to do this big Hamilton thing and they spot somebody say, when is the exhibit open? And the guys, Oh, you know, in a few weeks, like, Oh, would you like to see it now before it opens? Um, Sure. So they yes. got a private tour of this thing just <sighs> because they have nests. So always ask.
1: Music yeah, always be a always big ask.
0: nerd. Be a, yes. Be a big nerd. Um, so that's the story <laughs> of the book. But it was I got to meet all these incredibly lovely people and um, see letterpress operations, um, see these pieces of history that are in such a like, it's this incredible balance where I'm afraid they're all going to go away, and that going away means maybe not thrown into the streets as would be happening with letterpress stuff of years past, but more like. Um, yeah, it's too expensive in London, so maybe we'll send them up north somewhere to a warehouse where maybe we'll occasionally let researchers go and look at it, where the people involved in them are trying to keep them vibrant and alive and open. Um, and uh, so that's the book, is sort of it's a bittersweet book, but there's also about all the letterpress going on in London and the type and the Volpe exhibit, which was um, at the, this place called the Type Archive um, that has his papers. I got to meet um, one of Volpe's. Volpe had, even though he was born in, the uh, I think, 1905, or 1908, I forgot, his birth year. Uh, He, uh, and he died in uh, 1989. He uh, had four children a little late in life. He married his wife, I think he was in his 30s. She was slightly younger. And the four children are all living. They're all in their 60s and 70s. I wow. assumed that it was a generation off. I'd never heard about kids. I'd you know, known people who had known him and, and what have you. And his youngest son, Toby, is also a technology editor. He works for ZDNet in Europe. He's the editor of that, of course. Wow. And um, he's like, wait, you care about my father? I'm like,
1: yes, I've been studying his stuff for years. So I got to meet him. This is like and- the nerdier, cooler thing of what happens when people find out my dad wrote Highlander. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I mean, I guess like I will say that I went. Do you to know the,
0: how many times I saw that film?
1: I don't know how many. Possibly a
0: hundred. <laughs> no idea. Oh, Lucy. just like
1: this is the one profession oh my God. that I've gone into where that makes me a cool kid. Wow. Like you know, being it's at comic conventions, everything. that people are like, <gasps> holy oh cow. God. Yeah, this
0: is just, new orders of wow. <laughs> well. I don't know how to go beyond that. That's but a, the interview is changing shape now. That's my book. So was so yeah. printing at the School of Visual Concepts, by the way, does have a full letterpress program. You can take classes and learn letterpress. They have, uh, I forget, the classes are several weeks long. I like it's 10-week-long courses, totally introductory. They do lunchtime ones if you're over in South Lake. And it was great. It's an amazing place. And it's, again, it's one of these, uh, if I do my sidebar and, like, the changing face of the greater Seattle area and every metro area and whatever is, they're in like the last built, like so my, this, my, my Amazon joke is, oh so the School of Visual Concepts was two, week, two, or two blocks away from Amazon when I started my residency, then it was a block away it was across the street. Not exaggerating, while I'm there, the buildings are coming down, the pits are forming, the buildings are going up. So this is an old auto dealership that has a liquor store on one side. They've done a beautiful job with the building on the other. And they teach teach digital classroom, or digital uh, 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 design, everything else, and have a full letterpress program in the front. And it was a great year. Um, And this is just me having a wonderful time in London, afternoon tea. This is the friend, I was gonna meet a friend there, is a writer I've worked with before. And she said, well, let's meet at Fortnum & Mason in St. Pancras Station. I'm like, could anything be more English than afternoon tea there and then drinking a Guinness in this uh, traditional cakes. pub? Yes, tiny Or Kickstarter cakes. dollars at work. That's right, exactly. This, <laughs> this got me, maybe the man I am. So that's, this book, it's a short little book that has vastly packed with as much stuff in it as I could.
1: And it's beautifully designed too. Like, I mean, the thing that I really love about Glenn's work is that all of this is like very intentional um, and it's, Glenn is the person that somebody asked me at an event the other day, like, do you have anybody proofread your stuff or how does that work with having an editor? And uh, do you guys wanna hear a fun, terrible thing? Lots of you probably already know this. There's a barcode on the back of this book. The barcode does not work. Uh, I, I printed 4,000 books with barcodes that don't work um, because I didn't talk to Glenn. Talk to Glenn before you do anything. It's very important. Uh, it turns out there are different kinds of barcodes And uh, by chance, my first book, which I also self-published, I did get the barcode right, and I thought I did exactly the same thing this time, but I didn't. Uh, So Glenn is is the kind of person who will catch that if you are using a font that when you are, if you're in comics a lot of the time, you letter with uh, all caps, right? But for, this is a very specific nerdy thing, if you're saying, I went to the store, Uh, the I in that sentence should have crossbars at the top and bottom because otherwise it might be mistaken for a lowercase l. But if you say I went to the Inverness store, the I at the beginning of Inverness should not have crossbars at the top and bottom. And Glenn is the kind of person whose eagle eye will move through a text, and he will say, oh, on this page, this page, this page, this page, this page, you have crossbar eyes yes. when you should have regular eyes, or the kerning on this number is off, or you've used an N-dash instead of an M-dash, like, it's... Do
0: you want me to tell you the most ridiculous version of this story that I can yes. possibly tell This is the most Glenn version of the story to tell you. I'm watching, my children are 11 and 13, they both have read Sherlock Holmes, and we're watching the Jeremy Brett ones, which are the... You know, it's some people, I think they're the best of all time. I have not compared every version, but I think they're fantastic. And they're a little slower paced now, I realize. A little mm-hmm. like, okay, well, let's watch that carriage go down the street for a while. So we have to fill <laughs> a little time. But anyway, we're watching this thing. It's the, uh, the Three Gables, which I didn't remember the story. And there's, you know, and they've changed it a bit. And it gets to the end. And Watson flashes a newspaper up and says, oh, Holmes. Well, the story is out. And it goes down. And I say, wait a minute. And I freeze the screen. <laughs> and my boy's like, what? And I said, honeys, this That's Albertus. That's this type, sorry, this typeface. And they're like, oh, dad, is it really? And I rewind and I freeze frame, like, that's Albertus. But let me tell you something. This story was written in 1926. Albertus was not released until 1935.
1: Ah! (laughs) You heard it here first. Right but to I, your editor. I was
0: very impressed, actually, by the set designer that they or the props person because they, they picked a face that is very you know Albertus is the typeface of um, the city of London, so you're just that part of that one sort of borough of London. All the signage is in Albertus. It is a super London face. And in 19 you know 80 something when they made this show, there was no internet to say what year did Albertus come out. Like ah, it's around that time. And we, yeah, know, exactly.
1: Man. I love that. That is probably the most Glenn story I've ever very heard. Very Sherlock Holmes yeah. in that moment.
0: And then, I po- oh, the, and then I posted on Facebook, and the fellow at Monotype who revived Albertus is like, Oh, I hate when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it ruined, he said, it ruined uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find It for me, because they used Albertus throughout, and it, it certainly had not come out by that point.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, so. This is the equivalent of the thing that I always harp on, which is when you see a tall ship uh, that is moving oh. through space, Um, rather like this one. You'll notice that the the flags on this ship are blowing forwards towards the viewer, uh, which would make sense because it is a wind-powered vessel and the (laughs) wind needs to be going forwards. Uh, But because we live in a car-powered era, when people think of things going fast, they think of flags blowing backwards. And so, I can't, I'm sorry. To break this to all of you because you're gonna see it everywhere now. I guarantee you can find a book in this bookstore that has art that is put out by a professional publisher that is wrong. Uh, And you'll see them all over the place. It just it happens all the time. It's a perfectly understandable mistake, but it is unconscionable. Um, You should shame people when it happens. Tattoos. Isn't that in your cartoon it's on someone's tattoo? It happens in tattoos a lot. I did see two beautiful ship tattoos in Toronto uh, at the start of May at at TCAF uh, that were both great. But when you see the lower half of a ship on somebody's bicep and you go, oh, could I see your tattoo? And as they're rolling up the sleeve, you're like, please, please, please be right. Please be right. Please be right. (laughs) Yeah, it's right. Okay, we're good. And I always compliment, I tell them after the fact and say, God, you know, so many people get it wrong. And they go, oh, no, my tattoo artist was very um, forceful. (laughs) They They wanted to be very sure that that's the way the flags were going. So, uh, yeah, there's always something in your weird, nerdy niche to we get all into. We have
0: our wheelhouses.
1: Hey! Which is a phrase I do books. use often. Um,
0: Interesting for folks. I mean, this is, there's a lot of stories behind both these books. And yeah. This one in particular about, like, how I didn't estimate costs right. Mm. But then I righted the ship. So I'm just going to do this all night. Sorry.
1: <laughs> use as many nautical <laughs> phrases. Not intentionally. It just comes out. Right no, no, it's okay. That's right. Any port in a storm. Uh, oh. Uh, do not play this game with me.) That's right. <laughs> um, actually, no, I think you'd probably best me in, in, in single-handed verbal combat. Uh, well, OK, so in this sparring. Oh, uh, sparring. There we go. All right, we're not going to talk about the book, apparently. <laughs> How many people here make things?: Oh, that's good. Excellent. I'm so proud of all of you. That's, that's good. Uh, it's hard,
0: but we do have to do it.:
1: really is, It is hard. And the really fun thing about this tour, which I think I said earlier, is that we, we do just get to talk about how it's hard because I got really sick of people telling me that uh, I had my dream job and it must be so lovely to be self-employed, you're so free, you can do whatever you want all the time, you can leave and go on tour around the country. Congratulations on your tour, by the way. No, it's condolences. And it's, it's weird because it's paradoxical, right? It is the best thing ever. It is so incredibly magical and unreal to be able to make things that you imagine in your head and realize them in the world, you know, whether through uh, enthusiasm turning into research or uh, creative visualization turning into pictures, there's a lot there. And it's magical and amazing and wonderful, but then it's also like drudgery and hell and uh, self-doubt and all the other stuff. And something interesting that Glenn said when I was like, oh great, it, you know, do you wanna come do this in conversation thing with me for this event? Uh, we can talk about inner critics. And he said, well, it's interesting because I don't know that I have one, and which just makes me see red. <laughs> like, how dare you? <laughs> the whole premise of this book is that these themes are universal. Um, but I do talk to people who are like, I don't, I don't think I feel that way. But then you said something interesting, which was uh, that you think your inner critic, your, your demon, maybe mm-hmm. not inner critic, puts blinders on you. Exactly. And this maybe leads into talking about not estimating costs correctly, which is that you just blithely sweep into a room uh, and think like yes, I can do this. It'll be absolutely fine. What's the worst that can happen? Oh, d- debt. I see. That's the worst that can happen. Right. And there's uh, a line
0: between like there's there's arrogance, right? There's the yeah. um, which I I'm sure I have some, but I have the most <laughs> arrogance in the world. Um, but there's the there's the notion that you you know uh, that you feel entitled to things, let's say, or that you are so sure of yourself that you can do anything and make anything happen. And when failures happen, you don't acknowledge them. Well, that's lesser people and whatever. Yeah. And I feel like my heedlessness at times is the, uh, you know, hey, there's an exhibit of Bertolt Volpe in London. I should go and raise a Kickstarter, and then I'm going to build that plane to fly there while I'm actually, before I get on the plane, I'm going to be building it. And as we get in the air, I'm still putting the propeller on. That is definitely the how fly. this tour feels. Oh, geez. Well, so you can really, but so, but I have these things where uh, I feel like it's not that I think everything's going to go right. It's more that I don't have, um, and my older son seems to have this same capability, which is, uh, there's, uh, it's not a lack of fear of failure. It's that, uh not doing it seems so much worse to me all the time mm. that I have no uh, – there's nothing inside me that's saying, oh, you really can't do this. You shouldn't do it. It's more like, well, I could do this, and it could not go well, but the not going well part is okay. And yeah. somewhere online I managed to moderate it. You know, I'm sure it's like a basic neurology thing because given that one of my children is exhibiting these same – Absurd uh, notions about how to you know and and not that we should all have a severe inner critic But there needs to be some moderation there And so I'm definitely on the exchange telling Lucy. I'm like uh, oh, yeah, this how like I in 1993 I started an early web company. I didn't know how the internet worked. I didn't know how to program I didn't have any computers or servers or an internet connection, but what the hell and you know Hey, we're turned out fine, right?
1: Um, <laughs> you're very could. compelling as a personality though I think like it, it's, a, it's a quality that people have told me from grade school that I have that kids would ask me like God, why is the sky blue and I remember telling a kid once that it was whale farts <laughs> and they were like wow really? Genre appropriate no <laughs> <laughs> And it's there's something about like if you read a lot of books, you use big words, you speak with confidence. You know, I have a theatrical background, and so I think that's like if you if you have good uh, projection skills and diction, mm-hmm. people just think like, yeah, that lady must know what she's talking about. Like, no, <laughs> I am I am spouting nonsense 80 percent of the time, at least. Uh, so yeah, you also told the story about uh, going to volunteer to play piano at a recital when you didn't oh, yeah. know how to play piano. I didn't know how
0: to play the piano, and then I just played it. So. And my parents were shocked. Were you shocked? I was a little shocked. I had a senior year of high school, um, this is a pattern for my life, though, and I don't, didn't quite realize it until we were having these conversations, but it's like, this is something I do all the time. It, when I, uh, senior year of high school, I had a zero period class, which started at whenever, and I had to take a city bus across town. So I got to school and I had an hour to kill. I'd already done my homework the night before. I'm like, I don't know the to p- play the piano. I'm just gonna learn, to you know, and I spent you know, hours and hours in the morning just for something to do in one of the practice rooms, and uh, one of the, the woman who was one of the singers in our um, theater program and choral program says, oh, I'm gonna sing this song from a musical we did for graduation. I'm like, oh, I've learned that song. It's like one song I know of several. I talked to the music teacher, whatever showed him I could play it and so my parents had no idea I forgot to tell them I get up on stage she starts singing I'm playing my parents are like Glenn doesn't play the piano <laughs> do. and I did a perfectly passable accompanist job everyone's listening to her and then I went out and gave a speech of course one does after I don't know
1: yeah geez. But, yeah so th- that's so, different that's I'm glad that you preface that by saying you'd been practicing for hours and hours in the mornings because what I thought you meant was that you just walked up to the piano and sort of bashed out some experimental modernist composition by smashing no, your that face would on be the keyboard amazing.
0: but i think i mean i feel like i'm defining my demon as we have these discussions and learning my own demon which is that it's it's that it's that yours sometimes is pulling you back, mm-hmm. sometimes pulling you forward. Mine is always like, no, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So far, I have had a few flameouts in my life, nothing totally devastating and awful, but it's mostly played out for me okay. So I've had this un- maybe slightly unfortunate tendency. So when things, you know, like this is a good project example too, is that, um, the book is now broken even, but I priced it a little too low. I priced shipping a little too low. I priced expenses a little too low. And how
1: many backers did you have?
0: I had, what did I have, 150-odd or something? Which doesn't it very, seem like
1: a lot, but when you multiply, you know, yeah. your shipping's off by a dollar. Right, and then so like, I had oh. ship out.
0: Well, and then I did, a, I did a backer kit, which is a great... Post Kickstarter support thing, may, some of you may have used, and I sold another hunk of books, but all at that same price, so I got deeper into the hole. Mm-hmm. So when I shipped it all, I'm like, well, this is terrible. I'm finishing this project down $1,500. That doesn't seem great. I mean, you know, it covered all of my expenses, all the printing except for $1,500. So I did get a trip That's to pretty England. It wasn't yeah. bad, Then wasn't bad. So what I did is I said, you know, I'm almost out of books. I did a small printing so I wouldn't get deeper in debt. What if I go back to the world, go back to the universe, and say, hey, if I can get another 100 pre orders, I can do another batch of books, and it will help me break even on this project and sure enough within about a week I had another 100 pre-orders mm-hmm. and then have sold I think nearly 100 copies since and so now I am like at zero which is fine. My labor is valued at nothing but this was a labor of love but all of my hard costs are now covered and it feels like I was a little, you know, that's where I'm like alright I leapt into this too fast but now it's kind around. Sh- it
1: comes out in the wash oh, okay. and like Kickstarter is like this a lot so the, the scale for this campaign was a good deal uh, larger that we raised about which is astronomical, right? Like, that's what I could hope for on a good year as an annual income chunk. Uh, Cartoonists do not make a ton of money. And all of that money went back into printing the book. If I had not also used Backerkit and sold extra copies uh, as sort of pre-order copies after the campaign had closed, I probably would have been in the red. So it's really difficult to remember, like, oh... A huge chunk of money like that actually does just get sunk into not even just the cost of printing the books, but manufacturing the plushies was actually really expensive. Uh, they came out to, you know, I think like six fifty a pop at cost. And the general rule of thumb is that you want to price your book so that when you are selling it wholesale to a retailer, you will still turn a bit of a profit. And the, the rule of thumb is like three times the cost of production, because then, you know, if it's just double the cost, you're only barely breaking even. And you wanna make something that is uh, generally, you know, gonna get you that margin. Um, But it's tricky for, I've learned so much in this process about distribution, which is, just a hot mess uh the the publishing industry even people inside it readily acknowledge that it is a hot mess but being an independent practitioner trying to kind of weasel your way into this in-betweeny uh space where you're saying well i don't technically have a publisher the publisher is me but i'm gonna pretend that i have a publisher so that you'll think that you can put me in your catalog and uh i tried to explain it to somebody the other day and ended up drawing this diagram that just had 16 different tiers and all these different arrows and it was sort of like step one, step two, question mark, question mark, step three, warehouse, step four, goes to New Zealand, comes back, uh, is on a boat for a while and then goes over here and is sold from this warehouse to that warehouse. And it's just when I called uh, Dan at the shop, uh, we were talking about getting books for the event this evening and I said, oh, great, you were able to get the books from uh, Ingram. And he said, no, no, uh, they, they told me to go to Baker and & Taylor. And I said, great, Baker & Taylor. He said, no, they didn't have them. So I went to Diamond. And I said, oh, Diamond, okay, yeah. good. And he was like, no, not Diamond. And I said, oh, Emerald Comics Distro. And he said, no, 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 we got them from Olympia, which is my local warehouse in Portland. And I said, oh, okay, I think I need to streamline my business model. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not great, because the goal is to make it as easy as possible for the retailer to get your books. And really, I feel like in... in uh, this is a, a demon of mine, is like accommodate people by any means necessary, uh, which I think is a very common one, especially for uh, people who are raised and socialized female, is to just acquiesce to every demand. You know, bend over backwards, do everything you can to, to help people, make them feel comfortable, and make it easy. And that actually comes back to bite me in the butt at times like this, where it would be better to just say, there is one store, here is the one store where you get the things from. But... I don't, I I like making things available for people at different points. So, Anne, I'm sorry, I'm going to single you out. Anne is one of my distributors, runs an amazing company called Emerald Comics Distro, which specializes in taking small press publications. So I do mini comics, right? These are like, some of them are, this one is a a sketchbook of a trip that I took to Iceland. There's some uh, nice, good boats in here, good boats in Iceland. Nice whaling, wooden whaling ship in Husavik. Uh, and nice other boats in Reykjavik just like hanging out everywhere. They're cute as a button too. All the boats in Iceland are really adorable. Like the horses too. Same deal. But these are really hard for bookstores to get a hold of and distribute. They're not very durable. Uh, The price point on them doesn't really make a lot of sense. So Anne, enter Anne, uh, Emerald Comics Distro will, will take stuff like this and go around to Seattle area shops and Anne has done an amazing job being in business for the last year. Congratulations. And taking... Stuff from various indie artists around to all these different local comic shops and making sure that they have them in stock, which is hugely useful and cool. Uh, So, you know, I don't want to write off those indie comic shops because, like, that's bread and butter for me. And the money on all of this is like... It's not. It's not money, really. Uh, (laughs) It's, you know, if you're printing the book and it costs you four bucks a copy to make and it retails for ten and then, like, I happily pay Anne a monthly fee for carrying my books and then the retailer sells them and I get maybe 50 cents, maybe a dollar. But people find those books and they read them. It's the same reason that I give away all of my stuff online for free because it's, you know, the worst case scenario. I think Cory Doctorow said something about that, that he's... One of the leading editors of uh, Boing Boing and has written very extensively about his book is probably here in this shop. Uh, information doesn't. Information wants to be free.
0: No, it doesn't want to. Does, be
1: free. Uh, information doesn't want to be free. Well, that's the phrase. But yeah,
0: he's he's a contrary. No, he's yeah. Not he
1: his part. his deal is that information should be free, uh, and that he has put all of his books uh, online as eBooks that are DRM free, which means there's no proprietary lockdown on them. So anyone can share them, read them, download them. And uh, he made this point, which is like, well, if 3,000 people pirate my book, that's 3,000 people who have read my book. And, like, if they weren't going to pay for it, they, they weren't going to pay for it. Uh, the much higher chance is that out of those 3,000 people who have read your book, some percentage of them will like what you do enough to support your work. And, you know, there are people from, from a sort of older school of publishing, I think, who might say, well, you just put all these comics on the Internet for free. Like, why would anybody want to buy them? And you know, there's no, there's no purpose to having a book if you've just given them all away. But I'm a big print nerd, and I know you are too. <laughs> and there's something to be said for having an object, that there's something kind of talismanic about it. Uh, I also just like making beautiful objects. It's a great goal of mine to have... The highest compliment I received on uh, a self-published book of mine was being at a comics festival and an editor from Scholastic from the graphics imprint, which is like their big you know, middle grade graphic novel wing, walked by my table and casually like, picked up the cover of one of my books and flipped it over. And people do the, like, the drive-by flip through where they're kind of walking and they flip the cover and they keep walking and they let the cover fall closed. And he did that but like, kept looking over his shoulder <laughs> and then got about 10 feet away from the table and then turned around and came back <laughs> and picked up the book and looked at me and said, did you self-publish this? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he was like it's really pretty I said thank you he said here's my card if you ever want to do something let me know <laughs> but people people Which are just like people you know people pay attention to that stuff well, people, people pay attention to end
0: papers people want are craving a real thing I mean that's yeah. why independent bookstores still exist is because people yeah! want. yeah the <laughs> but there's a book I read a few years ago called uh revenge of analog has anyone read this book mm. no it's oh my gosh I so recommend this book maybe it's in the store
1: yeah it's a, great, uh,
0: it's a which is would be anti-ironic if it wasn't in this story I guess <laughs> but it's a book this re, this reporter um this writer I talked to him when he was prepping the a book bec- and gave him like some little tiny leads he was looking for but uh he looked at all these different areas he's like why and he had that sort of same sense i did i think when i was starting the new disruptors podcast uh which was um something's happening it's you know the the rec, you know lp vinyl went like this you know this incredible plunge and then like but they're selling more and more every year and it's never going to be here but it's like the sustainable level and this vinyl pressing factory outside nashville they had to go from one shift to three shifts now they're building mm. a new vinyl pressing factory in 2016 like what is that about and, and the same thing with film we had the, the narrative is that film is gone, for analog film is gone forever, and it's not. It's made a comeback, but not at a um, industrial massive level, but above some kind of little hobbyist one. And books, I mean print books. So here is why. This is the secret of why Amazon became so. This is what I think the secret is. I've written about this many places because I think it's a secret. <laughs> no one wants to acknowledge is. Um, that uh, Amazon went really uh, intense against publishers a few years ago like Hachette is because ebook sales as a percentage of the market and as an absolute dollar value tapered off. So their thing was, oh, we thought we were gonna eat this market and own it and use the pressure to control hardcover prices and et cetera and no so we hit an equilibrium where you know it did this but now it's kind of like that the overall book market in America has not grown that much it grows a little bit so Amazon is now contending for it's Kindle monopoly-ish piece oh with people like us I've and got with some hardcover. Kindle thoughts yeah, and with, but right with, now so th- but there's, um, but it's great because it shows people still want the physical, physical object despite the narrative that the physical object is dead people want a real thing they want it in they want you just, Lucy would you sign this for me Yeah. I want your you know, I mean I'll sign your Kindle a talismanic <laughs> power in my hands. Um, but it's also, there's something about, you know, even when you have a, device in the future that has perfect resolution where it's indistinguishable from paper it's still an arbitrary computing device it's not a thing that's a unique instantiation and human beings uh from the venus of villendorf thousands of years ago (laughs) to the present we want things we hold in our hand but that's one of the things that's interesting to me about letterpress is letterpress is about it's a hand process everything is made for the hand i mean it makes sense of course like it's not weird that it's made for the hand it'd be weird if it was made for Horses' hooves, or something. The nose. But yeah, it's like nose printing, but it's um, but there's a sense of uh, the thing that we want is the thing that our brain has created in the world in front of us, and digital doesn't fulfill all of that, and it's become uh, I think clearer and clearer how much people want this palpable. Thing. Yeah,
1: and they and they want, I mean, I'm going to go a step further and say that it's not even just tangible objects, but it's like tangible real experiences mm-hmm. with other people. This is certainly something this, that, yeah, this is this. this. Right, I, I did a book tour uh, for my last book, Baggy Wrinkles, and I, I think I was talking to a friend about this and saying that I, I believe that if I were not publishing through Kickstarter, I wouldn't feel as strongly about doing tours. Uh, because if I'm doing it for a publisher, yeah, the publisher's paying for it. And yes, it's valuable to go sort of press the flesh, and like, which is a terrible phrase, just uh, um, you know, kiss some babies uh, and like go out into the world. But there's something about if you're doing things independently or if you're funding a Kickstarter and arguably, you know, my first campaign in 2012, I think I, I way overshot. I was staggered at how well it did, um, but it was, you know, 333 people, which is not a ton of people, right? Uh, if... And I, I, when I was fairly young, I was starting out as a cartoonist, I read Kevin Kelly's essay about a thousand true fans, which uh, if you're not familiar with it, the basic premise is you don't need to be Beyonce to make a sustainable living. You actually just need to get, give or take, a thousand true fans who are people who will come to your book event, buy your book, buy a t-shirt, You know, would travel a certain number of hours to come and see you. And if you have a thousand of those, you can probably make it as an artist. And I read that and it really stuck in my mind because at the time it was like, that is a lot of people. <laughs> um, but the last two Kickstarters that I've run have had over a thousand backers. And like not every one of those people is a true fan, but I'm getting closer and I'm eight years in. So like maybe, but the interesting thing that I didn't realize is that he wrote a follow-up essay. Well, certainly Patreon hadn't come out yet. Um, And I want to say I read it when I was like a sophomore or junior in college, which was maybe like 2010, uh, 2009. but the, the thing that I found out later was that he'd written a follow-up essay, which was like, hey, I actually went and interviewed a bunch of artists, and it turns out that this isn't working for anybody? Yeah. And I'm really confused, because I could have sworn it was going to work, and like actually no one's making this kind of money. But that was before Kickstarter had become as ubiquitous as it mm-hmm. is now, and that was before Patreon hit the scene. Uh, if you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a, a revision of a, um, an original, very old model, which is that people give you money, and then you make art. Uh, but in a sort of non-immediate commercial sense, it's like this delayed capitalism is my my phrase for it, where you give people things that they are grateful for and then uh, down the line you say, hey, could you help me? And what the help that they are giving you is fiscal, but it's very different from giving something. We've all had this experience. You get an app or you get a book, you know, someone hands you a free sample and then the app comes back around a week later and says, that'll be $50. And it feels awful, right? Even if somebody hands you a thing and then says, oh, that'll be $5. It's like, You gave me this gift, you violated the tenant of the gift economy, this is awful. And if you give somebody something and it is genuinely a gift, you do not have an expectation Mm -hmm. of remuneration. And then down the line, you phrase it in a way that's like, hey, you enjoyed all these comics, would you like to help me make a thing? And people say yes, right? It's a very easy yes. And I don't, beyond articulating it this way, I don't know that I could put a finger on precisely where it is that that goes wrong and turns into a negative capitalistic Thing, but I feel like the the gratitude or gift economy runs on this exchange where you just kind of keep tossing the ball back and forth forever with people on tour. So the thing I was going to say that I started rambling into uh, was that I, I think in addition to physical objects and real objects, people are really hungry for real conversations. And in the last couple of years, particularly, there's been this like flailing energy of, oh, my God, the world is a nightmare. Like, what do we do? How do we ground ourselves? And... Uh, as somebody who did not grow up in a particularly religious tradition, I have seen the appeal of religion in a time like this to say like, oh, not even necessarily for the God business, but the idea that to go into a room with other people who are also interested in being good humans and sit there together and say like, hey, we're all really scared. Like how do we make this better? How do we make it better for one another? You know, if we can't make it better for the whole world how do we connect with one another on a one-to-one basis here right now? And that has been uh, a common thread in many conversations I've had with friends. And I think it's largely the reason this project took off mm-hmm. is that it, there's a certain degree of it that is speaking the unspeakable. And there's a lot of power in that. If there is a thing that you think will ruin you if you say it, chances are good that it will not. Uh, the And the worst thing that happens, I, I. Told myself this a lot today because you know I was like in tears in the Amtrak Union Station bathroom in Portland being like, oh, this is the start of the tour and I already f-ed it up and I came. Um and I kicked my suitcase a bunch and got really mad and texted my boyfriend and was like, Andy, it's all gone wrong. And I did. And it wasn't like I had plenty of time this morning. We were talking about this, the phenomenon of missing a flight or a train when you didn't even wake up late. It feels worse because you're like, what even led me here? I could have done it and I just didn't. And ugh. Um, but, you know, the worst thing that happens is uh, there's no train until tomorrow. And I tell you all to come to Outsider Comics instead at 2 p.m. And we hang out there. Like, it's, you know, it's not the end of the world. Nobody died. I mean, Glenn was saying, like, you know, if this book ships late, he's not curing cancer.
0: It'd be amazing <laughs> if it did.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, can I just... I'd, like, have, it out out I'd have it I out earlier.
0: I'd have it out earlier.
1: I'd <laughs> probably get more money for it.
0: This has been a special episode of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. The site is hosted on Squarespace. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site, newdisrupt.org. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please support the return of this show at newdisrupt.org slash kick or visit kickstarter.com and search for New Disruptors. Thanks again for listening.